research-based wisdom for fundraisers. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the fundraising school, and I'm joined today by Dr. Mark and Tony Wilhelm. Mark is a professor of philanthropic studies, an affiliate member of our faculty at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, where for the last, get this, 25 years, Mark has been asking the tough questions on leading issues, the changing landscape of philanthropy and fundraising and charitable giving and generosity. And he's joining us today to synthesize these two and a half decades of work to provide us guidance for our fundraising today and in the future. And Mark, it is an absolute delight to have you back with us on the Fundraising Schools podcast. Well, thank you for the uh, kind introduction and uh, for the invitation to talk together today. So as you've done your work over these last 25 years, I know a couple of kind of big category themes have emerged for you as you synthesize your various findings. Uh, Help our audience understand, what's that first theme that's really standing out for you? One of the things that we've been thinking a lot about are the multiple motives, uh, the multiple motives that lead people to give to charitable organizations. Roughly speaking, let's just think about them in two categories. Think about uh, collective products. In other words, think about philanthropy as voluntary action to produce a collective product. Uh, And that's central to uh, what it means to be human. We cooperate together to to make these collective products. And so people in in your line of work and uh, fundraisers, uh, it's a profession, a calling, a vocation uh, that engages the rest of us in what it really means to be human. Uh, so the collective aspect of what um, of what charitable organizations do is one of the reasons that people give to charities. But there are another set of reasons that are not collective, that are more private to the donor, the private benefit reasons. And there are a variety of those. Uh, some people uh, feel an internal duty to give to charity. Um, some people, uh, it makes them feel better. And that's a private benefit that goes along with the same act of giving to a charitable organization, but it's separate from the collective product that the charitable organization puts forward. Well, there are a bunch of those private uh, benefits to giving. And so think about those two as separate motives. That can be in play at the same time in each of us. And that's one of the things that, um, yeah, that we've been thinking about. And thinking about that changes how we um, how we understand various things that fundraisers do. You know, Mark, it really touches on a point that uh, the fundraising school, our alumni meet or exceed their fundraising goals at a rate higher than the national average. And we believe it's because wherever possible, Our curriculum is research and evidence-based through your research and the research of our other faculty and research colleagues, including other friends of the school in the United States and around the world. And yet, this is not A plus B automatically equals donation. You know, in the hard sciences, NASA isn't going to launch a rocket unless that correlation value is pretty close to 100%. In social science, there is so much variety from one person to the next. And that's what I'm hearing you say that, um, you know, you can have a hundred different donors to a nonprofit and they might have some collective reasons for giving, but the work of the fundraiser is to find out the individual reasons why each of those 100 are engaged with that nonprofit organization. 
That's right. And I think that's the direction in which uh, not only academic research about charitable giving, but also practitioner work needs to go. Trying to figure out for each separate donor, what is motivating that person to give to your charity? So recently with uh, Lisa Vesterlin, she and I did a lab experiment in which we objectively measured these two different kinds of motives, the collective uh, product motive and the uh, more private benefit motive. And at the end of that uh, experiment, we asked the participants a bunch of standard sort of psychology questions that allowed us to measure that person's self-reported tendency to react to situations of need with empathic concern and also to react to situations uh, of need with a more endorsement of a moral principle to help people in need. Well, it turns out that the people who self-report being an empathic kind of person, that kind of person is more likely to give toward the collective product. The kind of person who has a strong moral sense endorsing a principle of care that you help people in need, that person, it, motives are more uh, private benefit motives. Now, there's no sense here of one's better than the other, but understanding which motives your donors are leading your donors to give separately would allow you to write fundraising messages that connect to those motives. It goes back to the founding definition of the fundraising school from Henry Rosso that fundraising is the gentle art of teaching the joy of giving. And that word art, it, it's a short word with a big meaning, meaning that every donor is different. This isn't the suit bought off the rack at the department store. This is the tailored apparel. The tailor has made it specifically for the person. It's the same thing, Mark, when we're fundraising is really digging deep into those motives. Um, and I know another theme of yours then is that sometimes those motives are expressed on a regular timetable, one year to the next, and other times they're not. Help us understand your takeaway from your yeah. 25 years of research on the timing of charitable and philanthropic behaviors. So we're used to the hearing the statistics from annual measurements, how many people gave in this particular year. And all of us, me included, once we hear one of those percentages, we think, okay, there are two kinds of people in the world, people who give and people who don't. And this percentage is the same people year in, year out. If, it, if that percentage is 50%, it's the same people. That's just not right. So with the philanthropy panel study, which it, uh, measures charitable giving and funded by the IU Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, we can follow the same people over time and see over a longer time period uh, how many people give and what the frequency of giving is. And so uh, this was work done with Patrick Rooney and Xiaoyuan Wang and Jimmy Han. And what we found was that the right way to look at the variety of donors are, yes, there are people who give year in, year out to the same charitable purpose. And there are people who give from time to time every other year. And there are a few people, not many, who never give. But the distinction is really between regular year-in, year-out donors and 
timed time or seldom donors. I think the challenge for fundraisers is not to try to convert the small percentage of people who never give. It's to try to connect with the people who give from time to time or seldomly and help them <laughs> learn the, the, the joy <laughs> of giving regularly. So moving those people from time to time, seldom to regular. And to uh, amplify Mark's point, you know, we see these different data points uh, from the philanthropy panel study, about half of households donate. Well, then uh, there was a study on American perceptions about the philanthropic sector that found that about 60 percent of households donate. Wait, Gallup says the number is about 80 percent. No, the General Social Survey says 88 percent. And as you dive into this, a, a couple of key takeaways here. First of all, there is no such thing as a perfect data set. Second of all, Mark, and you know this, and if you could help our audience understand it from your unique expertise, different questions get asked different ways of different people at different times, right? And that can help explain some of the variety in these findings. That's right. I mean, with the uh, philanthropy panel study, uh, we'd like to say those res those respondents, the people responding to that survey are well-trained. They've done this many, many times. And so they know how to answer the questions. They understand when the question says, tell us about your giving in this calendar year, that's what they mean. And that if they didn't give in that calendar year, they don't have to say they gave because they're gonna give next year. They know they're gonna get next asked the next year. What I'm trying to say is that if the time frame is not clear in people's minds, then they can kind of legitimately say, well, I didn't give in this 12 month period, but I gave like the month before that period started. I'm a giver. I'm going to say that I did that. Interestingly, the higher numbers that you talked about from Gallup and the General Social Survey, that 88%, that's the percentage of people in the philanthropy panel study where if you expand the time period over to include eight years, that's exactly the percentage you give at least once during that eight-year time period. Fascinating, Mark. That is a wonderful uh, correlation of those two studies, a connection there. Where, where my mind goes to is all fundraising starts with the annual fund. So, uh, you know, just kind of where my mind goes talking with you here today is it's quite intuitive for a fundraiser to think, well, who gives every year because I have to fundraise every year. And what I'm hearing you suggest is we kind of have to play some 3D chess that it might be Mark is giving one year, but not the next. Well, Bill's giving that year, but not the year afterwards, or might not give for another two years. And that's how fundraisers need to think. We want those regular donors, of course, from one year to the next. But it's not true with every individual, let alone every foundation and corporation. And your research bears that out. And one of the things we have to start thinking about is how the way we're approaching donors probably has an effect on that regular time to time uh, uh, difference. So in other words, to think about the fundraising message, not just in terms of whether it will be successful this year, but if it even if it is successful, does this set the stage for the next year? Is it a kind of welcoming message that the uh, recipient of the message would like to receive again? So for instance, to take a maybe a negative example, if the message exerts too much social pressure, that might work once, but then the next year rolls around and maybe the person doesn't even open the mailing or check the email. So I think these questions about 
understanding donor motivations and timing are are linked. Mark, what are your thoughts then on donor stewardship? Because it would seem then donor stewardship is always important. It's the morally right thing to do. Somebody's given us a financial gift. We just need to treat them as the humans who they are with gratitude and stay in touch with them in ways that don't always involve asking them for more money. But especially if somebody's not donating every single year, but donates every second or third year, would seem to me to put and even another reason on the list of why donor stewardship is so important. Yeah. In fact, you could um, ask those donors to do something else for you. And so I mentioned the study that Lisa Vesterlin and I did about uh, asking people survey questions and then using that to predict their underlying motives uh, for giving. If a person doesn't want to give, you could maybe ask them uh, seven survey questions and say, look, it might not seem like it to you. But we don't want your money right now. But this would really help us if you could just answer these questions and stick this back in the mail. And stay in touch with us in our newsletter. Stay in touch with us on social media. Let me come visit. Come to our yeah. event or at least receive the invitation because we've stayed in your mailbox or in your email inbox. Uh, it's such an important learning that, yes, we have the annual fund. We want people to donate from one year to the next. But not everybody does. And again, just to spotlight that one data point, if if you think about Gallup and the general social survey saying that, you know, at least 80, sometimes 85, 88 percent of people are donating, it's truly 10 to 15 to maybe 20 percent of people who never donate. And Mark, to me, that really helps the fundraiser have a sense of possibility have a growth mindset, not to say that this work is easy, but that people are generous and the possibilities are there. And yet, as they have that approach, I love the story that you tell, and I hope you can share with our audience here today on um, thinking of our donors like we might think about that family photo. Can you yeah. help our, yeah. our uh, audience understand that, please? Yeah, many many of us have photos of our family, the people that came before us in our house, our parents, grandparents, their, their parents. A lot of those photos are in black and white. And I know when I look at those photos of uh, my past relatives, I see them in black and white, and I see them still. I never immediately start thinking of them moving around and doing things. Of course they did. But it's, a, it's we look at a picture at a snapshot and we just think statically. We don't think about the dynamic motion that was in our relatives' lives in the past. It's the same thing with these giving statistics. So that 50% is a snapshot. And we immediately jump to the conclusion, well, it's going to be 50% next year, and it's the same people in that 50% year in and year out. That's where we get this idea that there are donors and non-donors, and that's just not right. I think about... Oh, oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, the giving is dynamic. The right way to think about this is there are people who give with different frequencies. As you said, very few people are just completely out of the picture. Only about 13% of Americans are not giving at all ever. But that means there are 87% of Americans that are. The real distinction is splitting that group out into the regular versus the time to time and seldom givers. The the time to time and seldom givers, they've already signaled that they're willing to give. It's just a matter of timing. How frequently? There's There's the margin which fundraising can really work. And to uh, kind of riff off of your snapshot metaphor, which I absolutely love, 
Uh, you've said before that, you know, fundraising is not a photo. It's a motion picture, right? It's is a that, movie. It's a, it's a movie. movie. Yep. And, you know, the movie goes on. So it's not just a movie with the people that you're uh, writing to, the adults you're writing to now. It's a movie for the next generation. There's another generation coming up, and they're going to be in the movie too. And so fundraisers should be thinking about them as well. Ways to engage the younger people that are in the families of the donors that are giving currently. So, Mark, so much good advice and wisdom uh, from 25 years of research. And we encourage our audience to go on our school's website. We'll give that address in a moment. Uh, our research is available free of charge, including uh, all of Mark's findings throughout the last three decades. Um, and, you know, Mark, one key takeaway here, again, is donors have many different motives, usually not just one. Um, not every donor gives every single year. They might spread that out over many different years. It really shows that fundraising is work. We need to think about this. And fundraisers need to be leaders. And leaders live in ambiguity. That it's not, again, black and white, there's gray. Uh, and it's up to the fundraiser to discern through this complexity to help donors connect to the public service mission, find that values alignment, and make the world a better place. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Uh, maybe one bit of practical advice would be to, to uh, we've talked already a little bit about asking donors questions, getting their responses to some survey items, and using that to then uh, try to understand their underlying motivations and craft fundraising messages. So one thing I'd suggest not doing is trying to hit all the motives in one message. I think that's, I, I think many fundraisers, rightly so, understand that there are multiple motives. And I have seen plenty of fundraising messages that are trying to hit all of them. And it it doesn't work. It distracts me from the motives that I give when the other seven are being put forward. So uh, now that's a hard ask because that means you have to kind of individually tailor fundraising messages to specific people. Uh, but I think that's the right way to start to go. Well, I don't know. Would you mind if I turn this around? No, go ahead. And and ask you, like, what, what are new ideas that are on your mind? What are you thinking about these days? Well, a couple of things, Mark. One is we are asked all the time, what about this 50% finding that only half of households donate? We spend a lot of time unpacking that. And today's conversation really helped us in that regard. So thank you for that. Uh, uh, the, the stat I'm going to be quoting as I teach for the fundraising schools, it's really 10 to 15% of people who never donate. And so go find the 80 to 85% who can. Um, another aspect is, um, are we only pursuing gifts from folks kind of in the middle to the upper end of the donor pyramid? Uh, shame on us if people aren't donating because they're at the base of the pyramid. Uh, and so we, we talk about that quite a bit. And people say, well, that's more time and uh, it takes extra work. And we say, yeah, but, you know, everybody has that chance to express their generosity. So that topic comes up a lot. Donor stewardship comes up a lot. But then, of course, right now, the, the white hot topic is artificial intelligence. 
Um, how can I use AI wisely? Is AI going to take my job? Uh, and I, I think about you with your career. When you started 25 years ago, social media wasn't really all that active. People weren't sending videos. Some of your most recent research talks now about the unique influence of videos. And I would say, Mark, um, artificial intelligence and fundraising has people a little bit worried, but especially intrigued about how this can help us in our fundraising work. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, what, what else are practitioners talking about? Uh, yeah, just really trying to get all of that work done um, and being able to find those donors who uh, can can connect with the values of the organization when they're hearing some of this data about, you know, only 50 percent of households give, which is a reliable statistic from um, a very useful study. Uh, but again, there's those other numbers out there and just helping people see the big picture. One thing that I always talk about, uh, and I know you've done some research on things of this nature as well, is, you know, if we don't have as much generosity amongst households, how do we explain Damar Hamlin? the superstar football player who suffered that devastating near-death uh, experience on national TV, and suddenly $10 million were raised, or the response to Lahaina when that horrible, tragic fire happened and millions of dollars were raised. Uh, and again, that episodic giving is different than annual fund donating, but it does show that generosity is still alive and well. Yeah, yeah. Don't lose heart about the 50% number. That's a snapshot. It's not a movie. Mark and Tony Wilhelm is a Hall of Famer, one of the all-time greats in researching charitable giving, philanthropic behaviors, as an affiliate faculty member in philanthropic studies at the Indiana University Lilly Family School Philanthropy, which you can find online at philanthropy.iui.edu. Go across the toolbar, you'll see the tab for research, pull that down, there's a search function uh, where you can uh, search Mark's name or some of these topics and find free research. And again, the whole aspect of our school is to translate that research into practical action to help you lead your nonprofit organizations, work with your donors, and raise more money. That informs the curriculum of the fundraising school, 24 public courses. We're in eight US cities in person, and of course in the United States and around the world online. We can craft and tailor courses just for you, your nonprofit, your association, your region, your country, through our custom training programs, again, in person or online. We have quarterly webinars and these free podcasts, and our knowledge and wisdom and practical actions are gathered in our textbook, Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, the fifth edition. Again, that website, philanthropy.iupui.edu, add a forward slash in the fundraising school to find us at the fundraising school. What a delight to talk with Mark and Tony Wilhelm on this week's podcast, produced by Mike Anthony and Jennifer Boffman. I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more fully informed on this first day from the fundraising school. Mm -hmm.